Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Most sports experts would agree that the most important position in football is quarterback. And I think you can make an argument for quarterback being the most important position in sports, period. But what's the second most important position on a football team? Well, Joe Gibbs once said it's the backup quarterback. And based on what we've seen in the NFL this year... I think it would be hard to argue. Of course, when talking about the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, names like Unitas, Montana, Elway, Manning, Brady, they're always a part of the conversation. But what about the greatest backup quarterback of all time? Is there such a thing? Well, what if I told you yes? How about a quarterback who came off the bench to lead his team to an NFL championship? A backup quarterback who was named the league's MVP. A backup quarterback who finished his career with 20,000 plus yards passing. A backup quarterback who won the majority of the games for the undefeated Miami Dolphins of 1972. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at arguably the greatest backup quarterback of all time, Earl Morrill. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us as we take a look back at the other guys. Guys who, for whatever reason, never got the notoriety of some of their brethren. Guys who time has forgotten. And today, we're going to talk about the career of a terrific quarterback who never really got a chance to lead his own team, Earl Morrill. A victim of circumstance, Morrill continually found himself on the bench behind guys who would ultimately be enshrined into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Yep, Morrill played backup for the likes of Bobby Lane, Johnny Unitas, Fran Tarkenton, and Bob Greasy. But when given the chance, Morrill didn't disappoint. There have been many starting quarterbacks who wish they could have had the type of career that Earl Morrill did. Starting quarterbacks who wish they could have compiled the numbers that Morrill did and got sized up for as many championship rings that Morrill did. In fact, there are those who think that even though Earl Morrill was a backup quarterback, he should still be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And on today's show, we're going to talk about the fabulous career Morrill put together. 
with Mark Sullivan. Mark, a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association, is a longtime fan of morals and recently wrote an article for the EFRA's publication, The Coffin Corner, about moral and his assertion that moral is the greatest backup quarterback of all time. Before we get there, however, just a few reminders. Please spread the word and let your friends and fellow sports fans know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Spread the word and please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or a nice review wherever you can. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at Sports F Heroes, where we make posts on a daily basis. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram or log on to sportsfh.com. That's where you can learn more about our guests, check out articles and other research materials on the forgotten stars we talk about, and click on comments to send us notes about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Let us know how we're doing or make suggestions for future episodes. That's sportsfh.com. And as always, thanks for listening and thanks for your support. So Earl Morrill was originally drafted by the San Francisco 49ers, and he also played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Detroit Lions, New York Giants, Baltimore Colts, and Miami Dolphins. And it was for those last two teams, the Colts and the Dolphins, where Earl made his greatest impact on the game. And here to talk more about that impact and the career of Earl Morrill is Mark Sullivan. Mark, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could stop by and join us for a few. Hey, thank you, Warren. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, it's a nice to have chatted with you on the phone and met you the other day, and that's a very, it's a pleasure to be here this evening. Thank you. Awesome. Hey, let's start right from here. Where did your interest in Earl Morrill come from? After all, it's not like he was the best quarterback in the NFL. I suppose it goes back to my days as a kid in the '60s. I was a I was always a Colts fan, and I was a Johnny Unitas fan. Um, I remember watching, I was eight years old. I remember watching the 1964 championship game when the Browns shut out Cleveland. I believe it was 24, nothing, 27, nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, watched it, watched it with my dad, Frank Ryan threw uh, a couple touchdowns to Gary Collins and Jim Brown was on that team. And, uh, it just broke my heart watching the Colts. I, I mean, I, I love the Colts. And then, uh, so I followed them all through the years. I remember my dad took me to Franklin Field one day, and we watched Johnny Unitas carve up the Eagles back in uh, the Joe Q. Barrick era. Mm. And I, I had also written an article for uh, the Pro Football Researchers Association on, on Joe Q. Barrick, and uh, he was quite a character. But anyway, the uh, so anyway, when the 1968 season came, and uh, Johnny Unitas got hurt, Earl Morrill was he was he was he was our guy. I was a Colts fan, and he was our guy. And the next thing you know, the Season took off. They had the best defense in in the National Football League that year. I think they gave up 140. A record was 144, 142 points. That was broken by the Vikings the next year. Wow. So, I mean, you're looking at a defense that averaged uh, in 14 games. So they were giving up 10.3 points a game. Whereas the next year when the Vikings broke it at 140 points in a 14 game season, they were giving up 10 points a game. Hmm. 
Hmm. And they also had some really good warriors on that 1968 team. They had Tom Matty and Willie Richardson, John Mackey. Um, Bubba Smith, of course, was a great player. Mike Curtis was one of the, the best middle linebackers of my year and my, in my view back in that, in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, I liked it more, I, more, I just became a fan and I just, uh, you know, I rode with him every week and, uh, he got us, he got us to the big, he got us to the big game. And then, uh, I watched that Super Bowl. I was a kid. It was in 1969. I was had to be, uh, so I was 12 years old and I remember I, uh, God, I almost cried when we lost <laughs> that game. I swear. And I firmly, and I firmly believe to this day that had the Colts played the Jets a hundred times that those two teams that the Colts would have beaten that team 99 times out of 100. <laughs> they were that much, they were that much superior. And I also, and I also feel the same way about the Vikings when they played the chiefs the following year. I mean, we're just looking at two, I mean, the chiefs were a very good team, but they, I don't believe they were as superior to superior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just my, that's just my own personal view. But anyway, that's how I, I got interested in Earl Marl and I just, you know, I always followed the Colts and then he went to Miami and I, I followed him there and I just, uh, the guy, I just, I just always, you know, and I, I was always a, uh, I, I flew, I, I played a lot of football growing up. I was, uh, some teams I was a starter and some teams I was a backup quarterback. And, uh, so I always identified with, like, with backup quarterbacks. And so, I mean, as I've gotten older now, I'm 63 and I look back on my life and, you know, having been a backup uh, for a lot of years and I, I, you know, I just identify with those guys and I thought that, that he was the greatest of all time. And, I think that my article discusses that and lays it lays out a very good case for that. Yeah, sure. You wrote in the Coffin Corner, which is a newsletter published by the Professional Football Researchers Association, which you and I are both members of, that Earl Morrill is the greatest backup quarterback in the history of the NFL. It's a big statement. But you back it up pretty well. So why do you say that? Well, I think it's just uh, well. Here's a here's a man who, who let me let me just re- reference my article for more a moment. Uh, when he was called upon as a starter, he won sixty two percent of his appearances. He won three Super Bowl rings, one championship, four of the five playoff games he appeared in, and he led sixteen fourth quarter comebacks as well as thirteen game winning drives. Played in two Pro Bowls, was a two time first team All Pro a league MVP and a comeback player of the year recipient. And most of those awards he won as a backup quarterback. And then when he retired in 1976, he, he was in the top 25 quarterbacks all time in a number of different categories, whether it was attempts, completions, completion percentage, yards, touchdowns, passer rating. Um, I just feel that, you know, he, he was the, uh, he was like the Mario, Mariano Rivera mm. of his era. That's a good comparison. You know, he was, uh, he was, he's the, he's the, he's the great closer and, uh, the guy that you need on the bench, as Joe Gibbs said, the most important team person on the team is the quarterback. The second most important player is the backup quarterback. Yeah. You and know, it's I, interesting. It's interesting. You say that, uh, or, or that Joe Gibbs said that, and then, and then you talk about it. Um, you know, the other day in my office, we were having a discussion, especially this year, with all the injuries to quarterbacks about how important the role of the backup quarterback is. So let me ask you, how important is the backup quarterback and why? 
Why is he the second most important player on an NFL team or any football team? I think the quarterback is the quarterback, as you know, is the link. It's that he's the driver. That's the guy that makes everything go. And especially in this day and age with the way that they've had the rule change and the, and the open passing game. Um, the problem with a lot of these, what well, a lot of teams is they have a lot of injuries now and the, with the cap that they have the quarterback, the starting quarterback is making so much money that a lot of teams don't have enough talent at times around to either protect the quarterback uh, or they don't have enough. Uh, they don't have enough money to have a, a, a good backup quarterback. You and, and a lot of today, if you look at football today, teams are either built offensively or very strong defensively. You don't have like real combination of the two, maybe with the exception of New England at this point, but every team has such deficiencies. I mean, you look at the Cleveland Browns and they have such, you know, they've got Mayfield and uh, Baker Mayfield as the quarterback. You've got some outstanding wide receivers in Landry and Beckham. Um, you've got, um, You've got Nick Chubb as a running back. He's going to be a thousand yard back, but they have a very porous offensive line. Um, mm-hmm. they're strong, they, they have a strong defensive front, but, but I mean, uh, the Baker's getting sacked back there so many times. And um, I don't know if he's holding the ball too long. I mean, I've only seen him play a couple of times this year, but I was a, I was really hoping that Cleveland would win that division and uh, get into the playoffs. But I, you know, the, what are they for? I think believe they're four games behind Baltimore now. And I just don't see that happening, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I'm, but I mean, I just think that yeah, the, it, it, the quarterback is the most important position in sports. There's without a doubt in my view. And you have to have a backup guy that can take care of things and assume it. If, if the first guy goes down, I mean, look at uh, the giants when they won their super bowl, Phil Sims went down and Jeff Hostetler came in, yep. won that won the Super Bowl. Uh, we had here in Philadelphia. Well, I'm, I'm living in Maine now, but I'm, I grew up in Philadelphia. And uh, 2017, Nick Foles came off the bench after Carson Wentz got hurt and got us into the playoffs and uh, ran the table. We mm-hmm. had one in, in one of the greatest Super Bowls ever played. Mm-hmm. Went down to the last play of the game, actually. You know, if Brady 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 completes that pass over the that he threw into the end zone. If that goes to Gronkowski and it, they go for the two point conversion and they tie that game. You know, we have a, you know, it's possible the Eagles could have lost that thing very easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, you, like I say, you make a really strong case for why the backup quarterback is so important. And again, you're calling Earl perhaps the greatest backup quarterback in the history of the NFL. And you mentioned a couple of other backups, Nick Foles, Jeff Hostetler. Uh-huh. But there have been some other pretty good backups, too. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but we certainly need to discuss them. Jim Plunkett. Jim Plunkett, you know, he led the Raiders to two Super Bowl victories. Steve Young, who is famously... Joe Montana's backup before stepping into the limelight on his own. Heck, this year, we've seen Kyle Allen come in for an excel as Cam Newton's backup. And in New Orleans, we've seen Teddy Bridgewater come in for Drew Brees and do pretty well. So how is it, you know, especially when you look at Plunkett and and Young, who ultimately became starters. How is it that we can say Earl is the greatest backup of all time? Is it because he really played his entire career as a backup and never really 
outside of a couple of seasons here and there, really never got the opportunity to be a starter. Is that sort of what you're basing it on? How do you come yeah. up with how do you come up with that? Well, basically, you look at some you look at some quarterbacks who started as backups, then they later became Hall of Fame and quarterbacks and Pro Bowl starters. Then they became starters themselves and legends. Look at like you mentioned, Steve Young. How about Aaron Rodgers? He was backup to uh, mm-hmm. Brett Favre, mm-hmm. and Tom Brady was backup to Drew to, to, to uh, Drew Bledsoe. Drew Bledsoe for 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 a number of years until Bledsoe got hurt. Uh, you mentioned Jim Plunkett. Well, he came he came into the league as a starter in New England. And then he got traded to San Francisco and his career really went downhill and he was a backup. And then the next thing you know, he took the team over in Oakland and uh, or in, in uh, Los Angeles. And then they won the two Super Bowls out there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, again, these there's guys that started. There's guys that have started as backups and became starters and legends. There's guys that were. um starters then they went to backups and then they came back and, and became starters again like jim plunkett and look at doug williams doug williams won a super bowl and then you have uh the classic court the, the classic backups like uh Hostetler and falls who came in and and took a team over and, and won the big game so um the position is just the again as joe gibbs once said it's the second most important in my view and i believe very strongly that earl morrow was the the class, the gold standard of all of it. And I think it was because, and I think that the, the reason that he is so, and he, he's not, uh, he is, his, his time in the league was, was he, he was in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, Warren, he was a victim of circumstances. Yeah. And we're going to get into all of that. We really are. Um, I I want to get through so much with you, Mark, and and part of that is being a victim of circumstance. But before we get there, let's talk a little more about uh, Earl Morrill. Tell me about his, you know, he was a really good athlete. And he, you know, in the NFL, he was more than just a quarterback. He was a really good punter too. But let's start off. Tell me about his time at Michigan State. He he certainly uh, uh, made a mark on the game, the college game, during his days at Michigan State. What can you tell us about his career at Michigan State? Well, in 1955, he took the he took a team to an eight and one record. Uh, they won the Big Ten championship. He led a big, a game-winning drive against UCLA in a 1956 Rose Bowl, and they 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 earned the number two ranking uh, that year behind Bud Wilkinson's uh, Oklahoma Sooners. And at the end of that year, his senior year, he was a consensus All-American back. He was ranked the he ranked fourth in the Heisman Trophy balloting. Um, he was the country's best punter in 1955 with a 44.9 average. And to this day, he still holds several MSU records, uh, second in total offense per play, fourth in passing efficiency, 12th in average yards per punt, and 19th in passing yards per game. Um, so, I mean, it's, here, here's a guy that left, here's a guy that left Michigan State University more than 60 years ago, and he still has four records that still stand. And you stop and think of all the great players that come, have come mm-hmm. in and out of Michigan State mm-hmm. over the time. And then also while he was at MSU, he also uh, he played. He was in addition to being a, a quarterback and a punter, he also played defensive back. Mm. Um, and uh, I don't I failed to mention that in my 
in my uh, article, but I, 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 I did some further research and I found that. And in addition, he also played shortstop and third base on the university's baseball team that went to the College World Series playoffs. And uh, he played on the same team with uh, Ron Paranoski. Ron Paranoski. Ah. Ron Paranoski, when I was a kid in the 60s, was a relief pitcher for the Dodgers. And he pitched in this on the 63 Dodgers team with Sandy Koufax and uh, Don Drysdale. And uh, there was Marvy Wills. And uh, oh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ballplayers on that team. Wes Parker, I think, was the first yep. baseman. Yep. Johnny, Johnny Roseborough. Because I was mm-hmm. a Yankees fan when I was a little kid, because I liked Mickey Mantle, <laughs> so, and I remember I remember coming home from grade school. I was so I had in 1963. I had to be second or third grade, and that's when the World Series games were always on in the afternoon. And I, I used to come home from school, or we even watched it at St. Christopher's. I remember the nuns brought the TV in one day, and we watched the World Series game. And uh, wow, yeah, which was interesting. And uh, but anyway, yeah, they lost four straight, and. Uh, but anyway, Pat Parmanoski, I know, pitched on that team and he, he pitched on the, you know, a lot of the Dodgers teams in the 60s. So he played with he played with that. He played with him. And so he played against quality player. And then I also read later, I can't I couldn't find the name of the, the, the teams, but he also had the opportunity to go and play professional baseball. There were teams mm-hmm. that were scout. There were teams that were scouting him and they were interested in signing him uh, to minor league contract. But he ultimately chose football. Do you know why and, he chose football over baseball? Uh, I don't know. I think it was probably because it was, I think it was probably just because of the success he had. I mean, if you, you stop and think, I mean, here's a guy who was unanimous all American back, uh, fourth in the Heisman trophy, led the, led, led the country in punting second, led the, was the quarterback of the, the second ranked team in the country. I mean, it was just, uh, I mean, I think just, it, 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 it's just football. Just, I think when they looked at it overall, I think he, that, that was where his talent really his talent really lied and i think that he probably had a better shot mm. and in addition to in addition to back then as you know baseball was the number one sport right that's where if you went anywhere into any sport i mean baseball was always people's first choice so that was also probably a determining factor that you know he realized that well i would like to play baseball but I'm a better football player. Mm-hmm. So I might, as well, I might as well stick with this. Mm-hmm. So he had a great or a really good career at Michigan State. Earl was drafted second overall by the Niners in 1956 behind a guy by the name of Gary Glick. And he was a defensive back and he was taken number one by the Steelers. The Niners had Y.A. Tittle. Why draft Morrill? And here's what I mean by that question. They drafted Earl Morrill. He played a few games when Tittle got hurt. And then they traded him after the season to make room for another quarterback, John Brody, from Stanford. Did San Francisco not think Earl was good enough to become their eventual starter? I just don't get why they drafted him one year. And then they went ahead and drafted John Brody the following year, uh, uh, sort of scratching my head as to why this took place. Well, you have to remember John Brody played at Stanford, which is very close to San Francisco. So he was a local legend. I mean, the guy was, if you look at his old football cards, I mean, the guy looked like a movie star. He was a consensus All-American. 
he led the NC when he when he played, he led the NCAA in every passing category. The guy was incredibly accurate, just mm-hmm. as he was as a professional. He was seventh in the Heisman Trophy balloting, and he was the third pick in the draft. And I just I just firmly believe they saw him and he was a local name. And this was back in the this was back in the 50s where professional football teams didn't have the television contracts they have today. And so this way they bring a local guy in and he can help sell tickets. And that's just I just think that was just from a financial standpoint and it's just a business standpoint that they brought brought in. And I think that he was more marketable and. and probably they thought he was better than Marl, probably better, a better, had a better arm because he was, like I said, he led, he led the, the country in every passing category. Mm-hmm. If you, if, mm-hmm. you, if you look it up, whether it was attempts, yards, completion percentage, passer efficiency rating, interception percentage. I mean, he, 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 he had everything. He had it all. He was number one. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty, and that's pretty rare to come by. Mm-hmm. There's not too many, not many, too, not many guys, at least up until that point in time, probably could have made that claim. You know, mm-hmm. up in, you know, he got out in what, 56, 57. <clears throat> so basically, yeah, basically right. up until that point, there probably wasn't too many college quarterbacks that had led the, the country in every possible passing statistical category category. And he was so, another and he was another really good athlete too, John Brody. If I remember correctly, he even uh, made an attempt at a career in golf afterwards. Yeah, he played on the PGA uh, PGA um, seniors senior tour. He actually won one tournament, mm-hmm. and uh, he played in a number of tournaments. I forget how many he played. I know he he played in for he played for quite a number of years. He also was a a color analyst for a number of years on NBC with uh, Kirk Gowdy, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, yeah, he was a very uh, very accomplished fellow. Mm-hmm. And he made he was uh, he made some very wise investments as i recall reading and he, he was a very wealthy man and uh again he, he looked like the type of guy if you were you know if you were uh, if you were casting a movie he was right out of central casting i mean you would if you said this guy's my if you had a, a country club and you had to sit there and have a guy as your golf pro meaning you saw it and he dressed up john put uh, john brody dressed up in his uh you know, dressed up as, you know, when he went out to play golf, I mean, you would sit there and say, yeah, this is this guy. You can put this guy right in the movies <laughs> or just like a quarterback, you could mm-hmm. put him in his uniform. And I mean, he's your, he's your man, you mm-hmm. know, and you better, you know, you, you know, better, like I said, he was a very good looking, good looking guy, local legend. And, uh, I think the, I think the Niners basically made that decision from a, a business standpoint. They knew that they could sell this guy and they ultimately could in night, you know, in 1970, they got to the championship. I remember that game. They lost to the Cowboys, and uh, I think it was like the, the score was the Niners didn't score very many points. I remember at one point it was they had five points. I think at one point, like I wow. said, I, I saw this game back in 1970, so I was a kid. But and of course, I was rooting for. The, I'm a I'm an Eagles fan. I heard Eagles fan, so I was rooting for the 49ers. And so you were rooting for anybody who was playing against the Cowboys. Always, always. <laughs> so always. so so. So this is really where the victim of circumstance really starts to take shape. So like we said, he gets drafted by the Niners to back up YA Tittle. Then the Niners draft John Brody and they trade Earl Morrill to Pittsburgh. And the Steelers coach at the time was a guy by the name of Buddy Parker. Correct. He inserts Morrill and... 
he goes, Morrill goes as a team starter. He goes six and five. Now, here's what I don't get. Follow me for a moment. Mm-hmm. In 1955, the Pittsburgh Steelers go four and eight with Jim Finks at quarterback. Right. In 1956, the Steelers go five and seven with Ted Marchabroda at quarterback. Yeah. In 1957, they go six and five when Earl Morrill is the starter. Mm-hmm. In 1958, they bench Earl and they turn the team over to Bobby Lane, another victim of circumstance here. Sure, Lane right. was a great quarterback. But what was it about Earl Morrill that the Steelers didn't like and decided they needed to go out and get someone better? What? Why did they feel they needed to get Lane? I think it was because of, as you mentioned, about Buddy Parker. He had Buddy uh, Bobby Lane had played for Buddy Parker in the early fifties at, at Detroit, and they won two championships together. Mm-hmm. So it, it begs it begs the it begs the question why wouldn't want you you want why wouldn't you want why wouldn't you want to have your you know the your quarterback the basically the maestro of the two minute offense basically back and work together again I mean let's face it it's a, the quarterback and the and the head coach have such a have such a close working relationship and they won two championships together and. Uh, I think a lot of that had to do with it. I think that was a lot of, I think a lot of that was why that they went out and got lean. And, um, as far as Earl, I think he was just a, again, I think it was a victim of circumstance. And I think that why the, I had also did some reading and they said that some people thought he was too, in, too inconsistent to be a starter in the league. I think that was as, as his career went on. And, um, there's other things, there was other things like as far as, for example, I don't think he, had, he he had the really strong arm for the deep for the deep ball, even though they really didn't throw a lot of deep balls back in the fifties and in the early sixties. Uh, that really didn't come along, I think, until Bobby Hayes came into the league, mm-hmm. and that and that's when you saw zone defenses, right? And uh, because nobody could cover Bobby Hayes, I remember going to Franklin Field and watching Don Meredith. He threw five touchdowns one day against the Eagles. When I was a little kid, and uh, I think he threw three of them to Hayes, and he torched them. <laughs> and uh, I think it was the fact that it's the mere fact that Buddy Parker had a chance to reunite himself with Bobby Ling, and mm-hmm. uh, just like uh, you know, and just like I mean, there's other head coaches in, in in the history of football that would that that have it. They had a, they had a fascination for certain quarterbacks and wanted to and wanted to have them. Look at mm-hmm. um, look at Bum look at Bum Phillips. He trades Dan Pastorini for Ken Stabler. Mm-hmm. They're at Houston. Bump, Bump Phillips leaves Houston, and the next thing you know, he goes and he trades from he he goes to, from Houston to New Orleans, and he goes to New Orleans and he trades to New Orleans and he trades to get Stabler. Mm-hmm. I mean, some guys just like having certain guys; they just feel comfortable with them. Right. And the thing, and the reason that Bump Phillips made that trade was Stabler because he knew that Stabler was probably the only quarterback in that era that could possibly beat the Steelers mm-hmm. because, because Houston couldn't get over the hump. I mean, they had classic games. Some of the best games I've ever seen were between Pittsburgh and Houston. Yeah, I remember. sure. Those were great, great championship games and, and the regular season games. Uh, those, those were must watch television games. 
they there was one game where they I, I recall back in the seventies, I don't remember which year it was, but they actually took they took twenty two guys off the field. And that's not saying all twenty two guys stayed off the field, but they actually took twenty two guys off the field because the hitting was so intense back then. Um I mean to me that was the the best era in football was this, mm-hmm. it was this was the seventies and the early eighties. I don't I'm not as big a fan of the game the way it's played today and the officiating and the rule changes, but I just think that it's uh understandable. You know, and it's it's really lost a lot of people, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I mean, you see, you see, you see these uh, the rule changes, and you see guys like Ryan Fitzpatrick will come out and throw four, throw four hundred fifty four yards in a, <laughs> in, a, in a game. And I mean, you know, this guy's a, this guy would be a journeyman in the nineteen sixties right. if, if he even made if, if he, he even made, made the team if he even made the league if he couldn't yeah. even probably be on what they called taxi squads back then. He might not even be on that. You know, I mean, it's just a whole different game. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm working in fact on a third article for the, uh, for football researchers association. It's called the extinction of the fullback. Interesting. That's a very interesting topic. And I have all the, I have all the research and the numbers done. I just have to sit there and put together my, um, I started writing it and, uh, you stop and look at the, you know, from a football perspective i mean i mean i don't know if you want to talk me me to chat about this but i'll be happy to share with you my <laughs> well let's opinion. get back let's get back to earl let's get back to uh earl and and try to stay on topic here i would oh, sure, love to talk to you about about the extinct the extinction of the fullback because that's a that's a whole topic in and of itself so let's go back to pittsburgh so they they do get bobby lane and he was an all pro for the steelers um but do you think that even though he was an all-pro for the Steelers, that the Steelers gave up on moral too soon? Again, a young quarterback who is not given a chance to develop because the year after they got Bobby Lane, and Lane did well with the Steelers that first year, or afterwards they really became a 500 club again, and Bobby Lane really didn't lead them to any sort of promised land. And meanwhile, Earl was now playing for Detroit. He's back in Michigan, but he uh-huh. sat on the bench behind Tobin Rowe, Jim Nanowski, and then Milt Plum. So two questions here. First, do you think the Steelers gave up on Earl Morrill too soon? Yeah, in a way I do, because when he came to Pittsburgh, the Steelers had a six and six record. They were, that was the best record they had in four years. And he was also, he was backed up. A lot of people may not know this, but he was backed up by two hall of fame quarterbacks himself, uh, Lenny Dawson and Jack Kemp. Uh, Lenny Dawson, obviously everybody knows was a hall of famer with the chiefs. And Jack Kemp was a, an AFL hall of famer with the chargers and with the Buffalo bills. So he actually, uh, he, and in that year in 1957, he, he made it to the pro bowl for the Steelers. That was his first pro bowl. So the first opportunity he ever got to play as a starter, he not only had a winning record, but he went to the, he was, he was selected for the pro bowl, which back then was a big honor. I mean, today it's, it doesn't have the cachet that it has today. I mean, none of these guys go to the game and play anymore. You'll, you see fifth and sixth alternates go. And it's just a disgrace. I mean, but back then, I mean, it was a, it was a very high honor and he, he went and he, and he and he, he he represented his team, but uh, as you said, then they 
but Parker, I I firmly believe, just wanted to get reassociated with Bobby Lane because he knew Bobby Lane was a winner. He knew mm-hmm. what Bobby Lane could do. And so they made the trade. And uh, next thing you know, he went to the lines. And as you stated, he backed up, wrote, and went Jim Nanaski from uh, another MSU guy. And then uh, Milt Plum. But in 63, when he played, he uh, he had his best year with the he had his best year with the Lions. He was uh, the, they named the, he was named the team's MVP, and he had a very good statistical season. Yeah, he threw for twenty four touchdowns, only fourteen interceptions. He 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 was four five and one as a starter. Threw for over mm-hmm. twenty six hundred yards, but again, he wasn't really given the opportunity to be the team's starter for an extended period of time. In fact, he spent seven years with the Lions and went 15, 10, and 1 as a starter over those seven years. So why wasn't he given more of a chance in Detroit? Well, I think that what happened was you had – initially initially when he got there, they had Tobin Road, who was a pro baller, right? He happened to be have that misfortune again, victim of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Then, then you know, they went to, they they went to Nowinski, who was a a Cleveland Browns signal caller, and had probably had more experience. Um, he did play in '63; that was his best year. He had a shoulder injury in '64, and in '65, the the head coach Harry Gilmer decided to stick with Plum as the starter, and that was basically it. And then they made the trade. They made the trade to uh, traded him to um, to the Giants. Yeah. yeah, to the New York Giants. So that big. What 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 were what were Earl's strengths? What were his weaknesses? What was the knock against Earl Morrill? Well, I think the strengths for Earl Morrill basically was one: he was always ready to play. He had, and uh, it was just something that he knew when it was his time to do the job that he it was it was he was ready to go. His leadership ability. He had a great deal of character. The players respected him tremendously. People, I I read things about him, that, and they said everybody liked him. Everybody respected him. Another thing, I, I, which I think is a strength, I think he knew his limitations as a quarterback. I mean, he knew mm-hmm. he wasn't, he wasn't, he knew he wasn't Johnny Unitas. He knew he wasn't going to scramble around the field like Fran Tarkington. He knew he, he knew he wasn't uh, going to be like, uh, possibly as accurate as Bart Starr. But he knew his limitations and he had a 21 year career, which by implication just shows that he had a, a, a strong love and desire of the game. And I think that those are things that really show up in a huddle when you have 10 guys looking at you. And I, like I said, I played football for years. I was a, a start quarterback and a backup quarterback, grade school and high school, uh, recreational league teams. And so I know what it's like. I mean, guys will look to you and they look, they, they look to you for leadership. They look to you for. Uh, they look for you to to make the direction, to make the decisions, and to make the plays to get to 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 throw the touchdowns and to make the big plays and and to win. And I think that his 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 colleagues and his teammates knew that. I think the weaknesses that he had basically was he was kind of slow. His feet were kind of heavy. Basically, when he went in the pocket, I mean, he 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 went back. He wasn't like Roman Gabriel when Roman Gabriel dropped back. Roman Gabriel would go back into the pocket and I mean, you know, guys would hang on him like he was a statue. It would take two, three guys to bring him down. He, uh, 
I think it was basically he went back there and, you know, if, if there was a if there was a if there was some serious pressure, uh, he was too slow to move in the pocket. He again, he didn't have the real great arm for the deep ball, although they weren't throwing the deep ball back then. But his but his uh, his uh, how do I say his yards per his yards per completion were never really excessive. I don't believe until. 68 with Baltimore. I think that's when that it really took off. And that was because they had uh, Willie Richardson as an outside threat. And again, when Bobby Hayes came in 64, the game changed. There's certain guys that revolutionized the game. Jim Brown revolutionized the game. Bobby Hayes revolutionized the game. Lawrence Taylor revolutionized the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just think that um, he just never had that. He didn't have that outside threat for all those years. And another thing was the, the one thing that I read, and then I read this in a number of places. They, he was just always widely held to be too inconsistent to be a starter in the NFL. That was the knock on him. Mm-hmm. Why, why that happened, I don't know. Because I mean, again, I mean, when he got the opportunity in Pittsburgh, they he got him to a he got him to a, a, a five hundred record, which they hadn't had, and was the most wins they had in a in a four year period. Um, when he played for the Lions, he. Uh, when they played for the Lions in 63, that was his best year with the Lions. He, they had a 4-5-1 and one record, as you mentioned. But, I mean, he, he had some very good statistics, you know, league-wide. And uh, he was the team's MVP. And, again, uh, you know, he just, I, I think he also suffered sort of bad luck, shoulder injury in 64. And then and in 65, the head coach, Harry Gilmer, just wanted to – he wanted to go with Plum. And mm-hmm. Plum had been a Plum had been a two-time passing champion in the NFL when he played with Cleveland. So I mean, he, he had already been proven uh, a proven starter, and I think that that's why the, they went that route. Mm-hmm. You know, especially playing in the same division as the Packers, right? You know, they were playing in. So basically, this was in '64, '65. The Packers were. That's when the '64 they played in the same divisions with the Colts and the Packers, which were two of the '60. The six nineteen sixty four, the Colts won the. Uh, they went to the uh, NFL championship game against Cleveland and lost. Yep. And then in sixty five, the Packers won the NFL championship. So um, they had to go up against two, you know, really sterling teams. And with that said, he he wanted to go with. He 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 wanted to go with Plum. Mm-hmm. That was the decision he made. Well, 65, and it's funny you mentioned the name Fran Tarkenton earlier. 1965, Earl Morrill finally got his big chance. The New York Giants traded for him. And by the way, at that time, the Giants weren't really a good football team. Um, they went 2-10-2 the year before Earl Morrill arrived. He goes 7-7 seven and seven as the team's new starting quarterback in 1965. He threw for over 2,400 yards, 22 touchdowns, had 12 interceptions. And then the roof caved in on him. The Giants reverted back to their losing ways. He broke his wrist. And the right. Giants went out and got themselves a new quarterback, Fran Tarkenton. All right, I get it. He had an injury, but they still went out and got Tarkenton, I believe, before the injury. 
No, what had happened was in 66, he had broke his hand. Oh, okay. So then they went out and got Tarkenton. Did they give up? Did, 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 did they give up again? Did they give up on him too early? They gave up on Earl, and I, they may have given up again too early. But what happened was he had broke his hand in 66. And the Giants going into the 67 season, they weren't sure Marl's wrist would he actually heal. And I had read that they there was rumors that he was going to be traded to the St. Louis Cardinals in 67. And back then, that's the, that was the first year of, uh, the, of Jim Hart when Jim Hart was a quarterback. Mm-hmm. So more likely than not, he would have been there and he probably would have started a few games and then they would have given the chop to Jim Hart. And Jim Hart, as you know, was one of the most prolific passers of oh, all time. The guy had a big arm. Big arm, and then when you got him on uh, with the Air Coriel teams of the seventies, he was just a fabulous player. But um, but anyway, then what happened was there was a gentleman by the name of Tom Kennedy. There was there was a couple other there was two other quarterbacks on the team. There was Gary Wood, Tom Kennedy, and then there was Marl. They weren't sure Marl's wrist was going to heal, so they were ready to trade him to the to the Cardinals. But what happened was uh, Tom Kennedy got hurt. So they had to keep Marl around, and then all of a sudden they made the deal for Tarkington. <clears throat> and the rest was history. I mean, uh, Tarkington took him to a 7-7 record the first year, and uh, next, you know, in 1968, Earl shipped out again. But um, I mean, Tarkington had some phenomenal games with the Giants. One of the greatest football games I ever saw in my life was the New York Giants against Washington Redskins, and they played uh, Yankee Stadium. Washington was up three touchdowns with like maybe 11 minutes to go and tar- 12, 12 minutes to go or something like that. And Tarkington brought him down the field to uh, score three touchdowns and they beat Washington. I still remember it. I watched it as a kid with my dad and uh, one of the greatest games I ever saw. One of the greatest performances I ever saw from Kulikak. I mean, uh, the man was just unbelievable things that he could do. And, uh, you know, so obviously, I mean, you know, they brought Tarkington in. There was no way that they were going to play Marl again, and they knew it. Mm-hmm. So, so they they traded him. They traded for a uh, they traded him for a, uh, a reserve tight end named Butch Wilson mm-hmm. and an undisclosed draft choice. And so he goes to the so he goes to the Colts in '68, and again he's destined to be a backup to another. Right, but this team. was the big proverbial. Blessing in disguise, wasn't it? For the first time in his career, Earl Morrow was actually heading to a winning football team, the Baltimore Colts. And yeah, you know, he's going to have to play backup to Johnny Unitas, but he would get his chance. And like you discussed way back when we started today's podcast, he got his chance a lot sooner than anyone had expected. Tell us about that 1968 season. I mean, wow. Unitas gets hurt in the final preseason game. Morrill is named the starter. And wow, what a season. You better believe it. You know, uh, he took that team to a 13-1 record. The NFL championship, they beat Cleveland. They had one loss that, that, that year, as I just said, that uh, that was to the Browns. They had lost. Uh, they lost. Uh, it was thirty to twenty, and the reason that they lost, basically, Cleveland. I mean, Baltimore gave up. They had four turnovers in that game, and Unitas actually played in that game. 
he was one for 12 and he had three interceptions. His Water one bad game. game of the season. He was, yeah, exactly. United, that was Unitas that threw those interceptions and Marl had one interception. Oh, okay. 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 And I misunderstood. And they lost, uh, they, the, the, their kicker Michaels missed two field goals. It was just one of those days for them because in the championship game, they beat Cleveland 34, nothing. And that was at Cleveland. Um, the Cleveland had a very good team back then. That's when they had Bill Nelson and Leroy Kelly, Paul Warfield. I mean, you, you know, if you talk Paul Warfield and Leroy Kelly were all famous. Um, but anyway, back to Marl, he had a uh, career numbers and he was 34 years old at the time. And it was third in the league in passing percentage, completion percentage at 57.4%, second in yards for tw- more than 2,900 yards, 26 touchdowns, which led the league, passer rating of 93.2, which was second in the league. And uh, it was like the football gods just looked at him and just, just gave him a blessing and it was his time, you know? And uh, you know, here's a 34 year old guy. I mean, how, how how often would that happen in history? You mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, unfortunately, is uh, as I mentioned in the article, his Faustian deal with the far, far football gods ended tragically. <laughs> but 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 before it ended, he was named the league MVP. He was first team All Pro, and he was yeah yeah he led the yeah he was he, he exactly, and he had the. Uh, second in the league in passing. I mean, he was just, uh, it was just a, a phenomenal season. But, but then, then, like you said, go ahead. And then when he, you know, they got into the Super Bowl three against uh, Namath, Joe Namath's jet. He threw three first half interceptions. And uh, especially, and the last one was the killer because as I recall, uh, it was Jimmy Orr. Jimmy Orr was downfield alone in the end zone, waving his hands. And he threw the ball to somebody else, and I believe it was Johnny Sample or Randy Breverly intercepted the pass. Because Johnny Sample used to play for Baltimore in the 50s. He was on the 58-59 championship team. And, uh, you know, I got to know a lot of the guys on the Jets' names and players. I used to follow them. I used to have collect football cards when I was a kid, and I hated them. I hated the Jets. I still do to this day for that reason, because they beat them. Um, but anyway, he threw for three first half interceptions and they brought Unitas in. But, you know, you know, I had seen I had seen television interviews on ESPN and NFL channel, things of that nature. Unitas believed said he believed that if he had gotten into the game earlier and had more time to work, he might have been able to pull that game out. Maybe he could. Maybe he could. But at that point in, in his life in 68, Unitas's arm was pretty, pretty well shot. And he didn't learn it till much many years later. What had happened was the tendon on his passing arm had detached from his elbow. And so when he bought, when he threw the ball at times, the ball would just flutter uh, because he couldn't get a good handle on it. He couldn't, hmm. not, he didn't have the speed on it. And back then they didn't have MRIs, they didn't right. have CAT scans. So they couldn't do the type, the diagnosis, the diagnoses that they, that, uh, <clears throat> that they can do today. So he went out there with basically like, was like a wounded arm. It was like a bird with a wounded wing, and uh, he went out there. He gave it their shot. He did. He did get him. He did get him into the end zone for one score, but it just wasn't enough. Um, but yeah, it was a uh, it was a tragic day in my life. It was a very tragic day in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. It really was. Yeah. Well, um, the following season, Johnny Unitas is inserted back into the lineup as a team starter, and Earl took his 
spot on the bench behind Johnny. And he really didn't play much again until Johnny Unitas got hurt again. And that was the 1971 season. And uh-huh. once again, Earl Morrill was up to the task and he went seven and two as the Colts starter. So right. every time Earl was asked to start, he does his job. Let me ask you this. I don't know if you can answer this. Was Earl Morrill disappointed he didn't get more chances? I mean, how did he handle all of this? You know, I, I you know, that's a great question, Warren, and I don't know the answer because I, how can you get into anybody's head uh, to answer? But you just have to stop and think about it. The man was and the ultimate. He was a warrior. He was an ultimate competitor. So you know that deep down he wanted to play. He wanted to be out there. I mean, one of the strengths, in my view, not only did he, he, you know, he was he 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 knew his limitations, but he was a great leader. But the one thing was that he was always ready to play, and he knew when he was ready to be counted on, he had to go in and do the job. Mm-hmm. And so, and there was a, so. In, I mean, in my view, he it was in in my view basically he just he he had that he had that inner strength to know that he could play. But he lives. He lived in a, in an era where it was team first. You know, there's no I in team mm-hmm. back in the back in the '60s. There's no such thing. It's not like today where you have guys like Antonio Brown and Odell Beckham Jr. and uh, you know the divas of the league. I mm-hmm. mean, that all that all started, I believe, with probably what Chad Johnson, yeah, maybe Michael, like maybe Michael Irvin, or certainly Tyrell Ty- Ty- Owens. I mean, he mm-hmm. played here. He played in Philadelphia for what a year or two, and I mean it was just a nightmare. I mean the guy's a Hall of Fame player, but I mean you know you start to see that now. It's the it's another reason the game certainly isn't as in my view as as great as it used to be because um, the you have just the two, there's just too many egos involved. I mean back then guys they played for the team and they you know it was team first. Right, right. Well, you know. Um, like we said, victim of circumstance. You know, he played behind some pretty good quarterbacks. Y.A. Tittle, whom we've discussed. Bobby Lane, whom we've discussed. Fran Tarkenton. Johnny Unitas. It's not like he was getting benched for inferior talent. But, you know, he spent some years, four years, in Baltimore, and after the 1971 season, at the ripe old age of 38, he is waived by the Colts. Irony, though. You know, you talked about coaches, you know, when we were discussing Bobby Lane, coaches like to have their quarterbacks with them. So... The guy who entrusted the Colts to Earl Morrill back in 1968, Don Shula, was now the coach of the Dolphins, and he wanted a guy he could trust to back up his star quarterback, who at that time was Bob Greasy. As luck would have it, or bad luck, depends on how you look at things, the Dolphins get off to this incredible, fabulous start. They're 4-0. Midway uh-huh. through the fifth game of that famous 1972 season, Bob Greasy got hurt, and in came Earl Morrill. And 
He went on to complete the impossible. As quarterback of the Dolphins, Earl Morrill went 9-0 to help the Dolphins to an undefeated season, 14-0. And, you know, I think a lot of football fans today, when they look back at that team, they might believe that it was Bob Greasy who led the Dolphins to all 14 wins during the regular season. And that's not how it happened. Earl no. went 9-0. and And then he led Miami to wins over the Browns and the Steelers in the playoffs before finally giving way to Greasy in the Super Bowl, a game in which the Dolphins won 14-7 to wind up with the perfect mark of 17-0. It's still the only perfect season in NFL history. So, first things first. The satisfaction that Earl Morrill must have felt when the Dolphins shut out the Colts twice during that year, 23 to nothing and set and and 16 to nothing. Do you know if Earl ever spoke about beating the Colts twice that year? I mean, was have you heard anything about it? What kind of guy was Earl? Did he take pleasure in some sort of revenge? That season, just absolutely incredible. I have not read anything on that, but based on what I have read about Earl Marl, I do not believe he would have done anything like that. The man just exuded class and character, and he was a competitor, and he wouldn't. He I don't believe that he certainly would have said anything about against the, you know, fellow NFL colleagues, especially guys that he used to play with. I don't believe that he would do that. I think you would see that today, and you do see that today, um, um, in the, in today's NFL. But I mean, no, back then, no, I certainly would not. Not not him. He was raised. He was from a different era. You have to remember, he was born in the early '30s, so he was raised through the '30s and the '40s. He got high, actually he was born in the late thirties because he graduated high school in 51. So that would make him, uh, that's when my mother graduated high school. So that would, he means he was born about 1933. I, you know, these are people that grew up in the thirties, the depression. The yeah, he war. was born, he was born in 34 in Muskegon, Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. And the war, I mean, you know, then he grew up in the Midwest. So you have that whole Midwestern set of values and ethics and, no, he. That's no. There's just no way. If, if, uh, there's nothing ever I've ever seen written about it, and I firmly believe that he would never sit there. And, now, if he, you know, I, like I said, I couldn't get into his head. He might have walked. He might have walked over. You know, walked around by himself, thinking, "Oh man, it was this was great that we mm -hmm. beat them twice." But I don't think he, he would never come out and say something like that publicly. I mean, the man had just too much class, too much character. Mm -hmm. His, you know, his numbers for that season were rare. They were pretty darn good. I mean, obviously, he led a team that was really a running team. He threw for 11 touchdowns and had seven picks and totaled 1,360 yards. Talk about that incredible season, if you can, and how luck was finally on the side of Earl Morrill. Well, he, you know, he basically, he, he, he was just around a, they had a really great offensive line, that team they had. You figure you had two Hall of Famers. You had Jim Langer, and you had the uh, you had the the right guard, and his name escapes me at the moment. But he also made the Hall of Fame. Um, you had um, 
you had some you had you had Paul Warfield on the outside, Hall of Fame wide right receiver. Um, and then you had a, you had two really solid running backs. You had Larry Zonka, a Hall of Famer. Um, oh, the guard the guard's name that I I'm, I'm, I I couldn't remember at the moment was uh, Larry Little. Oh, sure, Larry, Larry Little, right? Larry Little, two Hall of Fame offensive linemen. You had a Hall of Fame fullback, a Hall of Fame wide receiver. You had a thousand yard runner in Mercury Morris, and you had the the the, the backup running back was Jim Kick. Um, so it was it was an offense that was perfectly suited, I think, for him at that point in his life. You said, like you said, Warren, he was thirty eight years old. I mean, so he didn't have to go out there, and he didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to go and put the ball up, uh, you know, thirty five times a game like uh, say Jim Hart did when he was with the Cardinals back in the early seventies, or Dan Fouts did when he was uh, he took over the. The, the Chargers when Dan when uh, Don Curiel took over the team he didn't have to he didn't have to run it that type of an offense he he was more of a game manager like what you know what Phil Sims I, when I and I when I think of like the ultimate game manager I think of guys like in the modern era I think of guys like Phil Sims uh, <clears throat> is one classic guy a guy that can come in he can move the team mm-hmm. he can move the chain he can move the chains he's not going to put up a ton of numbers. Uh, you know, passing wise, but he, he can get the job done and they pay and they're pretty steady and they win. They don't, he doesn't turn the ball over. And, uh, you know, he only had seven picks that whole year. So when he had a 55% completion average, eighth in the league. So, I mean, uh, he had uh, in 150 attempts and he had, what did I say? He had seven picks and 150 attempts. Right. Right. Good. He didn't, yeah, he didn't throw. He, he, it was, it was a running team. He, he did yeah. not throw the ball a great deal, but I believe his quarterback rating was near the top of the league. He was over 90% over, over yeah. 90. Yeah, it was 91%. And actually led the league in passing. He had the number, he was number one passing, uh, number one passer rating that year. So in addition to not only being the number one, passer of the year he was first team all pro and he was also the comeback player of the year Mm -hmm. i mean an impressive a very impressive thing for a man at 38 years of age no doubt i mean no doubt i mean i mean the only thing the only guys that have played at that at that level that have probably the only guys that have played at that level that have been that age or older that have really done anything spectacular in in nfl history would probably be tom brady Right? Yeah, yeah, that you I mean, you make I mean, a good you know, point. The only other guy I can maybe think of, but he really wasn't a quarterback at that point. Was George Blanda? It's, I was just going to say that Blanda would also be another, but Blanda was the type of guy he could come in and uh, as a backup at that point in his career, especially with Oakland at the end, and he could you know he could move a team and he could he could uh, he still had a gun mm-hmm. and uh, he probably had a better gun than Marl did, but. The fact of the matter was that uh, Marl did something that, again, like you said, and everybody, anybody that knows professional football knows, he did something that no one else had ever done before and no one has done since. Right. And for a man who's 38 years old and, like, again, to lead the league in passing, to be first-team All-Pro, comeback player of the year, lead a team to the undefeated season, I mean, it's just uh, it's just miraculous, mm-hmm. literally miraculous because uh, – when you look at him, I mean, he, you know, he had, he wore the high top shoes like Johnny Unitas. He, he had the buzz haircut like they wore back in the fifties. And this was yep. in 1972. 
when guys were wearing their hair longer. I mean, he looked like a throwback to a different era. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line was that the guy just knew how to, he knew he was a competitor. He knew how to win. And he, uh, he was a great leader. Guys followed him. Those guys would have followed him through a brick wall if they had to. Right. And, sure there, was, and there, there was only one disappointment that whole year for him. <laughs> it had to be the Super Bowl. Um, he got pulled in the Super Bowl to make way for Greasy because the Dolphins were struggling against the Redskins. Um, what happened? What? How did it all finally catch up with him in that game? Well, what happened was in the what happened was he 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 won the uh, he won in the divisional round against Cleveland, and he was in the AFC Championship game. He threw a touchdown to to Zonka, and then. Uh, Don Shula puts Greasy in in the second half, and then Miami beat Pittsburgh. And then in the Super Bowl, Marl didn't play whatsoever. He went with Greasy the whole time. And so Greasy, they won 14-7. And I believe it was, um, oh, that was the, the touchdown. The touchdown at Washington it scored was the interception that was thrown by Gabriel Yuprini. Yeah, the kicker. Yeah, and the, the defensive back. Oh, his name escapes me. It'll come to me in a moment. But anyway, um, Mike Bass. No, um, but anyway, yeah. Then that was the that was Washington's only score. But then again, what, Miami had a great defense on that back then. They had um, they had Dick Anderson as a safety, who was a first team All Pro. They had Vern Denherter, who was a pass rusher. Bill Stanfill. Uh, they had Mick Bonacani as the middle linebacker. He's a Hall of Famer. Um, you know, there, there are four or five names that come immediately to my mind. And mm-hmm. it was just, it was just a great defensive, great defensive club. And, uh, as the old saying goes, you know, offense sales tickets, defenses win championships. And, uh, you know, they had the right man to run that offense for that team. And Shula said that Bob Greasy said that, um, Bob Greasy once said that there would be no perfect season if it wasn't for Romaro. And that's certainly the truth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no doubt. No doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. You know, that was really it for Earl. Um, you know, he played sparingly after that. And finally, he retired after the 1976 season at the age of 42. For his career, Earl Morrill was 63, 36 and 3 as a starting quarterback. Do you have any idea? on how he looked back upon his career? No, but I, I think that <clears throat> I th- there's a there's a quote that I found and I placed it in my article. It's at the end of the article. And I, I think this, let me read this to you. And I think this, this sums it up. When asked in a 19 interview, 1989 interview, what it took to come off the bench to be an effective quarterback and team leader, Morrill replied, when you get the chance to do the job, you have to do the job. That's all there is to it. I mean, it was just totally selfless. Yeah. There's nothing egomaniacal about it. I mean, the bottom line is, I said, I think this guy was just a great competitor, a great leader. He knew his role. He, you know, I think he was also conditioned to the fact that you stop and think about it. He had been conditioned all of his career to be, be playing behind some Hall of Famer. At the, at the time, these guys obviously weren't Hall of Famers, but everybody, when he went into San Francisco, he was drafted. He knew that Wyatt Till was a, a pro ball quarterback, an all pro quarterback. Then he got 
Then he went to Pittsburgh and then he knew then he got traded for Bobby Lane and he knew, oh God, this is another Pro Bowl guy that I have to that's why they're making make getting me out of here, making room for him. Then he goes to Detroit and he's playing behind Tobin Rote, who's a Pro Bowl quarterback. He played behind Nowinski and then Mil Plummer had been a former Pro Bowl quarterback. So then they deal him to the Giants and then he goes he plays there a year and he plays there as well as first year he gets hurt. And then the next thing you know, they trade him for Tarkington, who was a pro bowl quarterback at the time. And he goes, he goes to, United, he goes to the Colts and he's thinking, Oh no, I have to play behind Unitas And you know, <laughs> one of the greatest ever next thing, you know, Unitas gets hurt. And then he miraculously has that 1968 season. And, uh, and then again, in, in uh, 71, he comes off the bench to, to win, to, to, when United got hurt in the Super Bowl to lead the winning drive, Jim O'Brien kicks the field goal with 13 seconds left. I mean, the first time the Super Bowl was ever decided by a field goal. Then he goes to Miami, and the next thing you know, he's, he's what he's, he's at that point. He's in his late 30s, and he's playing behind a, a young Pro Bowl quarterback again by the name of Bob Greasy. And uh, you know, he was just a, again. I think he was. I think he was just the guy after, at, at the point of that interview. He was just the guy. And I think he acknowledged that, you know, when I was called to do the, to do the job, I just had to do the job and that's all it was. And it, it's, did it great. Did it probably internally great on him that he wasn't the starter and he probably should have been sure. Of course, I'm, I'm sure he would. Mm-hmm. He's a, he was a competitor. Mm-hmm. He was a pro Bowl quarterback. He, he, he led the league in passing. He was a league MVP. You know, to sit there and, and, and to be like that and to win those accolades at a, at a later age in life and then sit there and have to be benched. Um, yeah, it's, it had to be very, very, had to be very, very difficult for his. I mean, let's face it. Every human being has an ego in some way, shape or form. Sure. And um, I believe with that said, um, I just think that he was. Uh, you know, I, I just think that he was just like, again, he was raised in a different era than the 30s and the 40s. He came. He played in. He played in the league in the fifties, sixties, and seventies when when the players were more about a team, and they, you know, there was no such thing as free agency. Um, the players played more. Con, were more concerned about winning and their team as than in 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 a lot of ways than I think that they, they may be today. Mm-hmm. And then after and then after he retired, he he went to the University of Miami. He became a quarterback coach and he helped develop Jim Jim Kelly, Hall of Famer. Pro Bowl, two pro, two other Pro Bowl quarterbacks, Vinny Testaverde and uh, Bernie Kosar. So I mean, he, uh, he 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 knew, you know, he had the gift as being a backup quarterback, having and and having been a starter, uh, having been an All American, to know how the positions to be played, mm-hmm. and he and he passed that, he passed a lot of wisdom on to those gentlemen who again had very successful careers. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, I think that, I think that the, I just believe that he's the gold standard mm-hmm. of, the, of, of the profession. I just don't see any, in my view, I don't see anybody could sit there and say, well, what about this? What about this backup? And, well, this guy was predominantly a backup and he did things as a backup that no one ever had ever done before. Yeah. He won a, he won a league MVP as a backup. And he also won. He also led a team to a perfect season. Yeah. I don't believe. I don't believe anybody will ever do something like that again. Not as a backup. I, Not as a backup no. for sure. No, I don't think you'll ever see another perfect season. Although New England might be able to do it. If anybody could do it, New England and yeah. Brady, Brady and Belichick could do it. But um, 
but as far as a backup coming off the bench and leading a team to a, a you know a per- perfect season or winning a uh, a league MVP award or something to that effect, I don't I don't I don't see it now because the the the, the contracts that the, the starters are, are are making so much that nowadays they bring these backups in and uh, God that some of these guys don't even belong in the league. Right. And, 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 you know, you make a perfect point. By the way, Mike Bass was the correct answer for the man who returned the interception, the fumble uh, of, of Gero Yepremian. Um, you're, 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 you're correct. I mean, take a look, like we said in the beginning of the show, how important the backup position is. Drew Brees goes down. Where would the Saints be without Teddy Bridgewater? Where would the Colts this year be as Andrew Luck retires right before the season starts? Where would they be without Jacoby Brissett? Where would the Jaguars be without George Minshew? Right? You have all these backup quarterbacks. You have to have a really, really good if not great quarterbacks sitting on the bench to come in, especially if you are a really good team, a Super Bowl contending team, you've got to have yourselves a really good, if not great backup quarterback. You have built everything to to go to the Super Bowl and your quarterback goes down. And again, the perfect example of that is this year there is no doubt that the saints are a super bowl contender if they didn't have teddy bridgewater to back up drew Brees, where would the saints be would they still be as good as they are would they have a shot no so it's really important i mean if they had and i i don't mean this in a real negative way if they had luke falk as their backup Instead of Teddy Bridgewater, look what Falk did with the Jets. They cut him as soon as Sam Darnold came back. Oh yeah, well, well the Eagles. I mean, that was the, that was the whole. You look at this, the Philadelphia Eagles season this year. I mean, I'm a diehard Eagles fan, and they're playing horrible football. But they went and they um, they shut the Giants, they shut the Jets out. But Luke Falk was the quarterback, and there's a guy that had has literally no business being in the league. I mean, he, he has none, none whatsoever. He doesn't even belong in the CFL. And uh, the Eagles sacked him 10 times, and they, you know, all of a sudden, you know, playing playing that game, it just inflated all their statistics. Hey, hey Mark, I want to end our show today with this. This is something pretty cool that I'm sure most fans of sports forgotten heroes don't know. In fact, most fans probably don't know about this. The Professional Football Researchers Association has something called the Hall of Very Good. Basically, the PFRA recognizes players who it feels should be considered for enshrinement into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Some of the players named to the Hall of Very Good and who were later enshrined in Canton include Benny Friedman, who we've done a podcast on, Bob Hayes, Jerry Kramer, Floyd Little, Ken Stabler. There are many. And right now, there are four players that PFRA is actively campaigning for. And I hope I get some of these names right. Lavi Dilwig, Duke Slater, who we did a podcast on, Max Speedy, and Al Wissert. Now, I'm not saying that Earl Morrill deserves enshrinement, 
nor am I saying he doesn't. But he was voted to the Hall of Very Good. And I think you could make a compelling case for Earl Morrill to be a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I mean, after all, when he retired, his numbers were, you know, they were tops. You know, they were top 10 numbers in certain categories. Would you care to state a case for Earl Morrill to be in the Hall of Fame? Oh, I would most, uh, I most definitely would. I believe that it demands longevity. The fact that he, he had won 62% of his games when he ever, he played three Super Bowl rings, one championship. He won four of the five playoff games he appeared in. Uh, he was, a, a he was a money player at the end of the game, but 16, 16 fourth quarter comebacks, 13 game winning drives, two pro bowls, two time, first team, all pro a league MVP, a comeback player of the year award, quarterback of the, uh, the team that led the perfect, uh, the perfect season took Miami to the, um, and, and, and one of had the only perfect season in NFL history. And as you said, Warren, and, and as I mentioned in my article, when he retired in 1976, uh, he was in the top, <clears throat> top, he was among the top 25 quarterbacks in just about every category attempts, completions, completion percentage, yards, touchdowns, interceptions, at percentage and passer rating. He was 14th in passer rating. I mean, when he, he was, he was an accurate, he was an accurate quarterback. And I just believe that he, he was the gold standard. And I, I think that at some point the league should recognize there's certain backups that deserve this type of recognition. And I, and I firmly believe that he is like, again, he's like, he's the Mariano Rivera of the game. Um, and you look at you look at uh, Kurt Warner. He had a great, he had, he had a, a nice career, very nice career. He won two MVPs. He took the he took the the Rams. They won the, they went to two Super Bowls. They won one of them. He took the Cardinals to a Super Bowl, and they uh, they lost in the last play of the game to Pittsburgh. Um, but I mean, I sit there and I say to myself, Is Kurt Warner a, a Hall of Famer? I don't know. I don't mm. know. Mm-hmm. And I also I also know that. I've had this discussion with other fans. I believe, I firmly believe that Dan Fouts is a Hall of Fame quarterback. I also firmly believe that Warren Moon is a Hall of Fame quarterback. Mm-hmm. But I've, mm-hmm. had, I've had people, I've had people tell me otherwise. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, and I, and, and these people feel pretty strongly about this. I mean, there's it's this great barroom discussion. You know. Yep, that's and what it's it, all about. That's what it's all about, and that's what makes it fun, and uh, that's what's so great about professional football history. And uh, uh, this is the greatest game that's been ever been invented, and uh, in my view, and uh, uh, it's certainly lacking today. It's not the game it used to be, and that's why I long for it, and that's why I like to write and publish these articles for the Pro Football Researchers Association. And like I as I said, I have one that I'm working on on the extinction of the fullback. And another position, I believe, that's also nearing extinction, extinction, or just about near extinction, is the the extinction of the middle linebacker. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like in nature, you have a big animal, and you need another big animal to be able to to deal with that animal. And you look at history throughout the fifties; you had Joe Perry and you had Jim Brown, and you had Jim Taylor, Dick Bass, Rick Caseres. Uh, Larry Zonka, Franco Harris, 
um, uh, then you go later in time and you have Leroy Hoard and you have Christian Okoye. Um, you look at uh, if you look at the Pro Bowl numbers. I what I, my number what my article has done so far. I've, I've looked at I looked at all the Pro Bowl fall, fullbacks from 1950s to the present day, and I think up until I think the last numbers I saw were last year's or the year before's because um, I haven't worked on my article in a while. But there was actually a fullback that went to the Pro Bowl as a chap by he plays for New England. Devlin mm-hmm. he played it. He played at Brown. His father is a very good friend with my brother-in-law. He played at Brown. He went to the Pro Bowl. He had no carries, zero carries, zero yards, zero touchdowns, zero receptions, and yet he made the Pro Bowl as a, as a Pro Bowl fullback. When you stop and look at the history of the game, at all the great fullbacks that it had, and then you look at all the great middle linebackers that the, that the game had Joe Schmidt, Sam Huff, Ray Nitsky, Vic Butkus, Mike Curtis, Willie Lanier, Mike Singletary. They're gone. They're gone. Who's the top middle linebacker in professional football today? Is yeah. it Keekly? Yeah. Who is it? Is it Keekly? I don't know. It I might mean, be Luke Keekly. And Ken Keekley's not the player he was three years ago. No, and, um, and, and you know it, it's funny you say this. I am a huge New York Giants fan, and in my in my life, and in my mind, the New York Giants have always been known for the strength of of their linebackers. They don't even draft linebackers. No, and look at the and if you look at the you look at the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, the, we are just. We don't we don't draft linebackers either. I mean, it's 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 a position that has not that has that has been so de-emphasized. They don't put any money into it, and we're we 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 put out there we put out projects out there. We have a guy that's starting as our middle linebacker now, and he he wasn't even drafted. Uh, played at Wisconsin. He was a good college football player. Reynolds is I believe his name is Reynolds. T.J. Reynolds. I think that's his name. Mm-hmm. And um, but anyway, one of the guys that we start his name is Nick uh, is a uh, Jerry, he was a former safety at Nebraska, and he was a fifth round pick, and he was a safety, and he's been a he's been an experiment, and uh, you know he's just he's not a linebacker, he's not a very good linebacker, and that's why this, and this team is just the teams, the teams the, the teams just de- de-emphasize the position today, and it's just mm-hmm. sad to me. Um, it was once such a you know it was once the, the one of the most valued and 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 prided possession uh positions in the game i mean you look all throughout history some of the you know the greatest built some of the greatest players were linebackers you know going back in the 50s and 60s and you know pittsburgh had jack ham and jack lambert and mm-hmm. andy russell i mean god who's better than that you had two hall of famers out of three and russell was a consistent pro bowl player you know and it, you know and you had uh you had oak at oakland you had phil uh, the, Bill Piano, had, and you had, had, you had you had the store Ted Hendricks. I mean, Ted Hendricks, yeah, Hall of Famer. Yeah. You had guys like you know in the earlier Oakland Raiders teams, you had guys like Dan Connors. I mean, uh, the Chiefs had Buddy Bell, and they also had Willie Lanier, two Hall of Famers. Mm-hmm. Packers had uh, Ray Nitsky, and uh, they had Leroy Jordan. I mean, you know, these are these are these are great players. A lot yeah. of them aren't, you know, some of them aren't Hall of Famers. But some of them are, and uh, 
Chuck Howley on the Cowboys. Uh, just uh, you know, it just goes on and on, and it's it's, it's a different it's game, funny. different game. Hey, hey, Mark. We got to we got we got to wrap her up. I want to thank you so much for joining me to talk about Earl Morrill and at some point we'll do something about the extinction of the fullback and what's going on with linebackers. I would love to talk to you more about that. But uh, right now we're going to wrap this one up. Thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you Warren. I really appreciate the uh the opportunity to speak with you and uh it was it was a lot of fun and i hope that we get a chance to do this again hey thank you i think today's episode of sports forgotten heroes and the discussion as to whether or not earl morrill is the greatest backup quarterback in the history of the nfl is quite interesting after all who would ever think of such a distinction and until i read mark's article in the coffin corner I never really considered such a distinction. But when you go through an entire career, a 20-year career, as a backup, with a very slight detour as the number one quarterback for the New York Giants, it's a great question. Was or is Earl Morrill the greatest backup ever? When you consider all he did, and that included compiling a career record of 63 wins with 36 losses and three ties, over 20,000 yards passing, 161 touchdown passes, a league MVP, and three championship rings, a very compelling argument can be made for such a distinction. And there are players who have been inducted into the Hall of Fame with less credentials. What a great question to ponder. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest today, Mark Sullivan. What a terrific discussion, and I hope all of you enjoyed it. Next time, we're going to go back to 1936 and talk about a really interesting time in U.S. and Olympic history. The first ever basketball tournament to be played in the Olympics and the controversy that surrounded it. And of course, the stars of the team who helped bring home the gold for the U.S. in basketball. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.